What amazing power the Lord is working in our lives and changing us. Let's pause for prayer, shall we? Our Father and our God, we present ourselves to you as living sacrifices, thanking you for all that you've done for us, thanking you for all that you're doing in our lives. Oh God, we praise you, we love you. We're here to tell you that we are grateful for your grace in our lives. Thank you for the work, the testimonies of lives changed that we got to witness this morning. And as we gather together, we know that our lives are changing. We are living testimonies of your truth. And so, our Father, I pray this morning that you will lead us to truth. Your word is truth. I pray, O oh Father, that our hearts will be inclined to, to welcome that truth in our lives and not to oppose it. I pray that you will give us energy and strength, O oh God, to, to be witnesses for you wherever we are. And I ask now that this amazing work of the Lord Jesus Christ in all his splendor might be demonstrated to us through your word today, Father, and the presence of your Holy Spirit here among us. May you continue to do a powerful work in us and through us and do a work of a saving work, O oh God, in the lives of those who might be lost, even in this room this morning. You do not yet know you as Lord and Savior. I pray, Father, and thank you for this time that we have with you to hear from your word. In Jesus' name, amen. When the first man and woman were created and placed in the Garden of Eden, God laid down a statement of truth. That statement to Adam and Eve was, you may eat of the fruit of the trees, any of the trees in the garden except for one, one tree at the center of the garden you may not eat. For if you eat of that fruit, you will surely die. That was the truth that God laid down at the very beginning to the federal representative of humanity, Adam and Eve. But along came another who countered that truth and proposed a contradictory truth, as R.C. Sproul calls it. You shall not surely die. And at that moment, Adam and Eve made a decision to reject the truth of God in favor of a contradictory truth. which turned out to be a lie. And we know that because we are part of it and living in the realities and the fallout of that. And quite honestly, if you want to understand the nature of what is happening all around us in the world, it has everything to do with that very concept. God offers and declares truth, and humanity the world over chooses a contradictory truth, a truth at odds against God's truth. What Adam did not realize and Eve did not realize that God meant what he said 
And that in fact, although Adam didn't realize it, when he ate of that fruit, he died. Oh, outwardly, it didn't appear like he died because he was still breathing and walking and eating. But what we do know is that spiritually, that moment Adam died. His connection with God was severed. His unhindered harmony and fellowship with the living God was killed. It says in the Word of God that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. Not only did his, he die spiritually and the barrier between him and God was severed, but he began to die as well physically. From that moment forward, Adam and Eve were dying, just like all the rest of us in the room this morning. There's a happy thought for today. But a critical and important thought nonetheless. Because um, as we embark upon the second part of our study on the doctrine of Christ, last week we talked about who Christ is, this week we're talking about the works of Christ. It's to that issue that I want to address most of my time. The declaration of God that if you eat of this fruit, you will surely die, and the contradictory proposal by Satan that said you will surely not die. This God of the world, uh, Satan, has convinced humanity that truth can be contradictory. Uh, to understand the nature and the philosophy of the post-modernity, post it is the idea that there can be these conflicting truths and they can coexist. When God says something is true, though, there is no contradictory truth that can hold up. So it's to this declaration of death that I'd like to give our attention when we're considering the work of Christ because there's so much we could deal with in talking about the works of Christ. We, we could talk about the fact that he fulfilled the Old Testament, Matthew 5, 17. We could talk about the fact that he completed Revelation, Hebrew 1, 1. We could talk about his signs and his miracles and his wonders endlessly. We could regale and, and, and share with each other about the, the greatness of Jesus Christ and what he has done and what he continues to do. We could talk about the fact that he explained God to us, John 1.18. But I want to answer the, the question, why God came to earth this morning. And I want to start by a little bit of a journey in John chapter 6, and then I want to take you in a few other tours of the scripture. John chapter 6. We learn that everybody wants the miracle show Jesus. There is no different in the time of Christ. In verse 26 of John 6, Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, you are looking for me. Well, actually, go back to 25. When they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? So the entourage is chasing Jesus all around. 
Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, you are looking for me not because you saw miraculous signs, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. You are chasing after me because I put food in your stomach. That's the only thing you're interested in. You're not interested in getting to know about me. You're not interested in, in marveling at the things that should be causing you to, to, to think very deeply about your life. No, you're just interested in me because I feed you. Do not work, he says, for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. On him, God the Father has placed the seal of approval. And then they asked him, what must we do to do the works God requires? Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. So they asked him, what miraculous sign then will you give that we may see it and believe? What, what will you do? Our forefathers ate the man in the desert, as is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Uh, God revealed himself to us in ages past by giving us food from heaven. It's still on to the food thing. Good Baptists, they always like the buffet. We got to feed you tonight to help you to come to the annual meeting. And Jesus said, I'm the bread of heaven. Feast on me. And then we get to verse 37, and he says this, All that the Father gives me will come to me. Note that. All that the Father gives me will come to me. He's talking about people. And whoever comes to me, I'll never drive away. For I have come down here. He answers the question why he came from heaven. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And then he answers the question that's in their mind. Well, what is this will? And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all that he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that a great truth? That's an, a truth we live by. So here it is. What, what is Jesus all about? He, he came to do God's will. And what is God's will? We were just singing about it. To make it possible for people to have their lives changed, dramatically changed from who they are and where they were going in the direction away from God, to change their lives radically, to change all the price tags of life. I want to take a closer look this morning at how this change happens because it relates to the curse that happened in the Garden of Eden, the promise of death. But Christ comes to promise us something amazing, encounter. How the works of Christ have made it possible for people to be, have dramatically changed lives forever. That's what I want to look at. And so I want, to, um, I want to point out three reasons this morning of why God came to earth, and there's one outcome. I'm only going to settle on one outcome. Like I said, there's so many things we could look at, but this is the core truth of, of what changes people's lives. We, we learned, and we have been learning over the last number of weeks, that, that out of Eden, 
Humanity emerged depraved. Do you remember we used that word? We've learned about that word. We learned that that word doesn't mean how bad you are. It, it, it means how bad off you are. We learned that um, humanity is very bad off. When the first humanity chose to reject God's truth and eat of that fruit, God God's declaration was imposed on mankind. You will surely die. And we learned as we studied the scriptures a few weeks ago that no one is righteous. No one understands. No one seeks God. In case you weren't here, we found that, discovered that in Romans chapter 3, verse 11 and 12. But we also discovered it in Psalm 14, 1 to 3, and Psalm 53, 1 to 3. Very same thing. You know, when God tells us the same thing three times, it's a pretty important truth. It's critical for us to understand the plight of humanity. No one understands about God. No one is righteous. No one seeks God. Maybe if I encourage you to all say it with me. This is God's truth. This is what we're using is God's truth. God's truth is knowable and we can understand it. No one understands. Tell me that. Say it back to me. No one understands. No one is righteous. And no one seeks God. Not only that, we discover in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, that everyone is dead in their trespasses and sins. Completely, spiritually, gonzo. That isn't in, in the Word of God. But sort of is in the new amplified Rick version. <laughs> dead and dying just as God's word declared, just as God's truth declared, you will surely die, and we are. We're dying, we're dead in our trespasses and sins, which was later con contradicted by Satan. You will not die. Oh, yes, we are dying. How many funeral services do we have to go to to realize that Satan lied? Not only that, but in Romans 3, verse 12, it says, we've all turned away from God. In Isaiah 53, verse 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. So, so how bad off are we? We're depraved, we're dead, and we're obliviously lost. That's the state of humanity. You want to understand the nature of what's going on around you. That's the sorry human estate. Into which Jesus Christ enters. He came from heaven and entered that world. The world of depraved, dead, obliviously lost people. 
In Luke chapter 19, the first vignette I want to look at this morning, Jesus enters Jericho. And he picks out a little guy who's up a tree by the name of Zacchaeus. He called him by name. Now, don't allow that to escape your attention when you look at this. Jesus walks into Jericho, and there's a little guy up in a tree, and he calls him by name, Zacchaeus. Get out of the tree, because I'm coming to your house for a sleepover. (laughs) The reaction of the people around that day was grumble, 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 mumble, mumble, mumble. Look at them, verse 7. All the people saw this and began to mutter. The word is grumble. He has gone to be the guest of a sinner. (gasps) Gasp. Jesus is hanging out with a sinner. That's not what righteous people do. They don't go hanging out with sinners. Jesus had to remind them a little bit later on, it's the sick that need a doctor. What if doctors didn't hang out with sick people? What if Christians don't hang out with sinners? How will they ever hear about the Son of God who came from heaven to earth? And so they're asking, what are you doing hanging out with a sinner? And Jesus gives them this response in verse 10. I'm hanging out with sinners because the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. We're looking at this first reason of the three that we want to look at why God came to earth is it seeking to save what was lost, those who is spiritually dead, that they might have a burning passion for Christ. Because that's what Jesus came to do. He came to seek people who couldn't seek him. He came to save people who were obliviously lost. I think some of, I, I know some of you, you're thinking, man, when I, when I talk about my testimony, I love to say, well, you know, when I was 10 years old, I accepted Jesus as my Savior. No, you didn't. Jesus accepted you. That's what really happened. I, I understand the language and how we try to understand all of this, but Zacchaeus was called out by Jesus, Zacchaeus, come down. I'm coming to your house. And it says there that salvation came today to his house. Look what Jesus said. Today salvation has come to this house because this man too is the son of Abraham. Salvation has come to his house. When Jesus seeks out your life, you're not the one who could seek him but he seeks you and calls you. And the evidence of a changed heart, Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, verse 8, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I'll pay back four times the amount. How do we know that something has happened to Zacchaeus? His life changed dramatically. 
He dinged himself for way more than he had to in terms of reparation. I'm giving four times back. And not only that, I'm going to give away half of my possessions. Now, Zacchaeus was a tax gatherer. Nobody liked a tax gatherer. We like them now, don't we? But we didn't, they didn't like them then. You see, a tax gatherer back then was given a sum of money he had to collect from everybody, and anything he could collect over and above that was his pay. So everybody had a different rate of taxation. Wait a minute. So do we today. But he would get what he could get. Nobody liked him. He lied. He cheated. He would tell them, this is what Rome wants. They didn't want that. He would pad his pocket. Matthew, the writer of the first gospel, was a tax collector. These are not the kind of people that should become Christians. Jesus came to seek and to save sinners who couldn't seek him, lost people, obliviously lost, who had turned their backs on him and were cheating people, people like you and like me. That's who Jesus came to find and to bring into his family. When Zacchaeus encountered Jesus, he realized he'd hit the jackpot. He realized that his life had come under new ownership. That's why he decided to give away half his possessions because they weren't any longer his possessions. He was giving away God's stuff and he loves doing that. That's how we ought to view our lives. We, we hold on to everything. We hold on to our stuff like it's our stuff. We don't own anything. If you belong to Jesus Christ, he owns you. He owns everything you have and everything you are. If you think about it that way, you're giving away somebody else's stuff. It's easier that way. I love giving away other people's stuff. I remember a few years back, um, you know, Global Ministries received a tremendously large bequest. And the stipulation was, give it away. I love those. And the late Steve Legg and myself got to give leadership to giving away three quarters of a million dollars in like weeks. You ever try to do that? It's amazingly fun when it's not your money, you're giving it away. It's lovely. But all that we have belongs to God. How does salvation happen? God reaches out to accept us through Jesus. And like Zacchaeus, we discover that regardless of how bad or how lost we are, that we can turn to God, and he'll receive us and welcome us. I, I personally have never met anyone who turned to God who he turned away. Not ever. To all who received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God, John 1.12. Even those who believe in his name. So there's this radical worldview change that happens when someone who is lost comes to Christ and then lives a life producing fruit and in keeping with repentance, that you've actually changed from your life and now you're following God. You become, you've come under new ownership. The old is gone, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians. You now become a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. 
At the very end of this gospel of Luke, Jesus has risen from the grave and he's walking around outside of Jerusalem. He bumps into two guys on the road to Emmaus. They talk to Jesus for a while and then they eventually find out, it's Jesus! And then he leaves. And they look at each other and one of them says, didn't our hearts burn? How do you know you're saved? Your whole life changes. Your whole disposition changes. Your your attraction to the things of God and the truth of God changes. When you hear the words of God, your heart burns. We were singing a song this morning about when the Spirit of God comes, brings tears to us. We fall on our knees. When when the encounter with the living God is taking place in our lives, it changes us. We go from dead spiritually to having our hearts now burning passionately for the things of God. That's why Jesus came. Jesus came to call people into his family whose hearts would be passionately burning for him. And now he's given this mission of seeking and saving that which is lost to us. We can't save anybody. But we go out and we seek. We seek those who can't seek God because they don't understand. They're not righteous. And they don't seek God. So we carry on this mission and go and seek them. That requires engaging sinners. That requires hanging out with them. Not becoming them. Engaging them in the truth. And sometimes it's uncomfortable and sometimes it's messy. But that's what the church is called to do. Go make disciples, commission to do it. And the real deal, if we have Christ, shows up, radically changed lives. We're not lost anymore. There's a second vignette I want to jump into. It has to do with Mama Zebedee. You know Mama Zebedee? You, you ever heard of the two disciples, Jimmy and Johnny? Zebedee, the Zebedee boys? Do you know these guys? You've been at church this long and you don't know them? The sons of thunder? Well, Mama Zebedee was an ambitious mother, like for her kids. Not dissimilar to any mother I've ever bumped into, to be honest. She asked Jesus if her sons could have the sweet seats in the kingdom. Matthew 20, you can find it there. This caused no little stir among the other guys. Can my boy Johnny sit on your right hand? Can my boy Jimmy sit on your left hand when you bring your kingdom? Now, Jesus loved the fact that she was anticipating and believing that he was the king of the kingdom. Don't get me wrong. And he loved Jimmy and Johnny. They were among his favorites. But he said to her, you know what, Mama Zebedee, you you have the kingdom wrong. You're thinking about how the Gentiles lord it over everybody. You're thinking about the dictatorships of the world. That's not how my kingdom's going to be. It is going to be a dictatorship. I'm going to be sacrificial. 
The leader of this kingdom will be characterized by service and sacrifice. In fact, so much so that the king of this kingdom will offer his life a ransom for many. This has never been heard of. Kings don't offer themselves as ransom. Mine's not a hostile takeover, but a costly personal sacrifice to me. So no, I'm not given or promising the sweet seats in the kingdom to Jimmy and Johnny. No, not at all. Because I've come to give my life as a ransom for many. I've come to redeem hostages of sin. Would you turn in your Bibles as we continue our doctrine of Christ to read in Galatians something very crucial in response to the fall of man from the Garden of Eden? You see, when Adam sinned, Humanity lost its freedom. I, I hear so many people wander around telling me, oh, people have free will, they, have free, they can make their free decisions. No, they can't. Humanity is not free. If there's one solid, clear doctrine in the scriptures, it is this, that when Adam and Eve fell to sin, from that day forward, Human beings became slaves to sin. Romans 6.6 6, and all over the scriptures. They became hostages to sin. No longer the people who you know outside of Jesus Christ, they are not free. They are completely enslaved to sin. And as slaves of sin, they're actually hostages to sin. If you want to understand the, the big idea of the world. We are living in a world that is experiencing a hostage crisis. The people you work with, the people who live down the street, the people who are in your families are in a hostage crisis. They're held hostage to sin. That's what by nature they have to do. They are slaves to choose to rebel against God. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 10, it further elaborates on this concept by saying, all who rely on observing the law, the law meaning the God's word, all who rely on observing the law are under a curse. Well, that doesn't make sense. Why would we be under a curse if we're observing God's law? Well, here's why. For it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Here's the problem of humanity. Because we've been held hostage to sin, we can't keep the law of God. We don't want to. And the minute we don't keep the law of God, we are under the curse of God because God, a holy God, cannot look upon sin. 
And so the world is in a hostage crisis. The world's in a horrible, horrible state. The world is in a hostage crisis to sin, has to sin, and God has cursed those who sin. And turn, what curse means is God turns his back away from. And if that situation does not change before we breathe our final breath, we are lost from God forever. But here's what Jesus did for us. Christ, verse 13, redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. The second reason that Jesus came is to redeem us from the curse of the law. Let me explain to you what's going on here. The picture in terms of this theology of redemption or ransom is a picture of a battlefield whereby there's bodies of wounded soldiers strewn all over this battlefield. And in the ancient days after the battle was over, the victorious side could go out to the battlefield and find wounded soldiers. And any they wanted, they could collect and take them back to their home. And they could nurse them back to health and make them slaves of their house. Or if they found a particularly important person, like an officer or a, a very important person to the city that they had vanquished, they could offer the city the wounded soldier back for a ransom price. The city could buy back their wounded with a ransom. They could redeem these wounded soldiers. The picture of our world is this. It's a battlefield strewn with wounded bodies who have rejected the living God and are now casualties of Satan, hostages to sin. And Jesus Christ came to this earth to willingly be the ransom price to buy back hostages from the battlefield of this world. It says in the scriptures, we weren't purchased by the blood of bulls and goats, but by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. What was the price? The precious blood of Jesus Christ. And Jesus did two things for us which are very important and pointed out here. He became a curse for us by hanging on a tree. You need to understand that Jewish execution was fundamentally by stoning to death. And so Jesus came and was not handed over to the Jews to be executed, but by God's providential will was handed over to the Romans. Because the Roman method of execution was to hang on a tree or hang on a wooden cross. 
And in the book of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 23, we discover there that when a crime was particularly heinous in ancient Israel, they would hang the person on the tree for execution as a symbol of God's curse. This person is particularly cursed. So when Jesus Christ willingly went to the cross for us and hung on a tree, he was fulfilling that symbolic picture of the Old Testament that this person is particularly cursed by God. You know, we've been led to believe that Christ was crying out in agony because the nails pierced his hands and the nails pierced his feet. That's not why Jesus cried out in agony, as painful as that was. Jesus cried out in agony when he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Do you realize what your Savior has done for you? He has taken your sins upon himself, the curse that was on you because of your sinfulness, and bore it himself to the tree of Calvary, becoming our curse for us. And God the Father turned his back on the Son so that he would never have to turn his back on us. But there's a second thing. Jesus Christ was crucified on the outside of the city. In Leviticus 16, it talks about the the ceremony of atonement, of getting right with God. And in that ceremony, there are two goats. One goat is sacrificed. The second goat becomes a symbol of sin. And that sin is symbolically, the sin of the community of the people is symbolically laid on that goat. And that goat is sent out into the wilderness, into the desert, never to be seen again, never to come back again. It's called the scapegoat. Jesus became our scapegoat by being crucified on the outside of the city. By hanging on the tree, Jesus took our curse and became our scapegoat so that our curse could be changed to blessing, and the invitation for us would be welcoming into God's home forever. That's what Christ has done for us. That's why Jesus came. Christ's work purchased eternal redemption, freed those in Christ who were hostages to sin, so that now we are no longer slaves to sin, We are freed from sin to live righteous lives before God. It's a lifestyle change that is invited to all of us. And there's a final vignette in John chapter 10. John is, or Jesus is (coughs) talking to the Jews and arguing for the truth And he says to them, I tell you the truth. The devil has come to steal, kill, and destroy. In John 8, 44, he says, the devil is a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. 
And in this titanic battle, in this moment whereby God in Eden had made this declaration of death and Satan had given a contradictory statement, Jesus is responding to that and saying the devil has been a liar since the beginning. When he lies, he speaks his native language. There is no truth in him. The devil has been lying to people that they might disobey against God and his word, contradict his truth. The devil has been stealing fellowship from man and God. The devil has been marketing death to people who could have life. And Jesus said this to them, yet because I tell you the truth, you don't believe me. There's a final reason Jesus came that I want to talk to you about this morning. And that is this. In John, 1 John 3, 8, it says, He came to destroy the works of the devil. Those major works I've just shared with you. And those who choose lies over God's truth by sinning are sentenced to death. Make no mistake about it. What God said in the Garden of Eden, he meant. Those who sin will die. We know in the Bible it says the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God, eternal life. What happened? How did we get the death sentence that was on us commuted? We need to understand that Jesus Christ being our ransom, being our redeemer, when he went to the cross and took our sins upon himself, he took the punishment for our sin. And the punishment for our sin is death, as had been promised in the Garden of Eden. So when Jesus died on the cross, he died for your sin. And once he died for your sin, we, Peter gives this sermon in Acts chapter 2. It was impossible for, for the grave to keep the Son of God. And so he rose from the, from the grave. Why? Because he was the sinless Son of God. The sins that were upon him were our sins, not his. He went to defeat death. He went to pay the penalty which had to be paid of death. He became our ransom price. And by paying the price, the judgment had been fulfilled. And now, because of Christ, and if we are in Christ, now the righteousness of Christ has been imputed to us. When God the Father sees us, he doesn't see us as hostages to sin, and therefore worthy of death. He sees us as forgiven of Christ and covered by the blood of Jesus Christ, our ransom price. No longer are we eligible for death. It has been lifted from us. The judgment of death can't be on us anymore because the sin is gone. Does that mean we don't sin? No, we sin. Our sins, the past, our sins today, the sins of the future have been forgiven by the Lord Jesus Christ. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. His death on the cross was enough to cover all of the sins we will ever commit. But God's people stop sinning because that's who we are. We have a changed lifestyle. Do we realize the gravity of this? 
Christianity stands or falls on the reality of the resurrection. If Jesus did not die, we are still hostages to our sin and sentenced to death. But since he rose from the grave, we are no longer hostages to sin. We are freed from that. We are freed from the punishment of that because he took it upon himself. Once the wages of sin has been paid, the gift of God, eternal life, is granted to us. Death came by sin. We learned that last week. Romans 5, 12. Death came by sin. Adam and Eve were, the plan for Adam and Eve was to live forever. And the plan for us is to live forever. But not outside of Christ. Because God meant what he said in the Garden of Eden. And the world is sentenced to death, cursed by God who is willing to bless them that receive his offer of ransom through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. That means, brothers and sisters, that those in Christ cannot die. We cannot die. It's not possible for us to die because sin has been removed. That's great news, isn't it? That's the message we take to the world. That's the message that, that should light the fire of our hearts. Death can no longer be your destiny. The high court decision has been made at the empty tomb of Calvary for all of us who are in Christ Jesus. And the devil's death work can no longer touch you in Christ Jesus. So the only question that's left for us this morning as we conclude is what is Christ doing in your life? Have you welcomed the works of Christ, his saving work, into your life? He offers it to you this morning. Jesus Christ willingly offers you salvation and for those to whom he's offering it realize that you can turn to Christ and receive him as Savior and then you are no longer a hostage to sin and no longer sentenced to death you are now free and eternally alive that's something to celebrate. Our Father and our God, thank you so much for Christ who we love and the truth that you have given to us in him. I pray, oh God, that you would wake us up. If we don't know you, Lord, today we can know you. And to know you is life eternal. And if we haven't been celebrating this, if we haven't been living this great truth, oh God, today... Would we wake up to the works of Christ and what you are doing in our lives, oh God, to change us for eternity, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Hallelujah, he's alive. And because he lives, we will live also. Well, now you know the doctrine of Jesus Christ, right? You know Christ, you can make him known. Tell everybody about who he is. There's one last little catch. Discover in Matthew 7, there were a lot of people who talking about the fact they knew Christ. 
They could tell other people about Christ. They were doing things in his name and all that kind of stuff. And he made one critical point. He said, yeah, but I don't know you. And that makes all the difference in the world. We can say we know about Christ. We can say we can tell other people about Christ. But the question really comes down to this. Does Christ know you? You know, if somebody came up to me today and said, um, do you know Bill Gates? I'd say, yeah, I know Bill Gates. Can you tell me about Bill Gates? Yeah, I can tell you a few things about Bill Gates. He's got a computer thing going. Very rich. Could you, uh, since you know him, could you ask him for some money for me? Say, well, what would I say? I'd say, well, I don't know him that well. I, I know of him. But I don't know him because if I asked him for money, he'd say, like, who are you? I don't even know you. Why would I give you? Why would I let you come stay at my cottage? I don't even know you. That's the deal with God as well. Many of us know about him. We can even tell people about him, but, but he doesn't know us. So I don't want to leave you now with, in a fog, but you should be asking me, well, how could I know if he knows me or not? I'm glad you asked. When Jesus was telling everybody about Satan's lies, he also told them about how they could know if they really knew God. In in John chapter 10, Jesus said this, the watchman opens the gate for him and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. My sheep listen to my voice and follow me. They will not listen to the voice of another. They don't even recognize it. If you're trying to understand why I'm so passionate about the truth, it is for this reason. Those who really belong to God, who He knows, my sheep, He calls them, They recognize my voice. They welcome my truth. They listen to me. They don't listen to others. They don't engage and invite contradictory truth into their lives. Those who are mine are characterized this way. They listen to my voice. That's how you know if God knows you. Our Father, I pray this morning that everybody in here is known to you. But maybe in the hearing of your word and truth, there are those who say, I'm not listening to that. I have been welcoming that. I've been entertaining all kinds of ideas. But, oh God, I want salvation from Jesus Christ. I want to hear your voice, Lord. I want to follow your voice. So, Father, thank you that you are still saving people today. And anyone who turns to you and receives you, you will welcome them into your family. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.